if you've been with us for the last uh, five weeks, we've been going through this sermon series together, um, which is following the art of following Jesus, and we've been looking at Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. So Paul wrote this letter. It's one of his 13 letters that we have recorded in the New Testament, and it's kind of in the middle, and it's easy to miss. Actually, can everyone open up their Bibles if you have it in front of you? A hard copy is better, but if you have it on your phone, that's great too, so you can follow along. It's going to be helpful today. So we've been studying this letter. We've been looking at Paul and what he's saying, what he's saying to the Thessalonian community, and we've been looking at them, this letter, asking the question, what does it mean for us to be a community of people who are devoted to the words and ways of Jesus? Because that's what we are all about. As a river church, as the people who are gathered here, we are people who are devoted to the words and ways of Jesus. We want our lives to model, to imitate, to look like, be transformed into Jesus Christ's life. His words, what he spoke, what he taught, we want to imitate in our own lives. His ways, how he lived, how he performed, everything, we want to model and imitate in our own lives. And so we're looking at this letter to the Thessalonian community as kind of like a mirror. We're seeing them as this young church community that was trying to figure the same thing out that we are now. They were trying to figure out about 2,000 years ago what it looked like for them to follow the words and ways of Jesus, just like we're doing now. So we're looking at them with this kind of mirror saying, okay, what are they learning? What are they doing well? And what was the Apostle Paul speaking into their lives? How was the Apostle Paul teaching them? What was he saying to them? And what can we learn from that today as we, again, reflect into this mirror, which is the letter? And it's a beautiful letter. It's a letter of friendship. Paul is writing to this community, and he has a, a certain fondness for them. If you're familiar with Paul's letter to the Philippians as well, it carries the same familiarity. It's this familial tone, kind of this... Uh, Paul often in his letter to the Thessalonians has brothers and sisters. He's trying to create this atmosphere and this environment of a family, of a church family and community. And he's writing to them. He just heard how they were doing, and he's writing to them to encourage them and to give them a few more kind of tips and tricks and really commands about how they can be shaped into a community of people following Jesus. And so this week, we are going to be in the conclusion of the letter. It's the last 14 verses, or 16 verses. I did the math wrong in my head. The last 16 verses. And Paul's conclusion to this letter is kind of long. It's kind of drawn out. I mean, it's a bit like when a pastor is preaching, and they say that they're, you know, nearing their conclusion, this is my final point, and then they say, like, five or six more things, and they keep talking for about 20 minutes. That's kind of what Paul this letter feels like, what Paul is writing. It seems like it ends, but then it like just keeps on going. He has like four more different conclusions. Or I don't know if anyone's going to relate to this, but in the last Harry Potter movie, there's this like extra additional scene, it feels like, with Harry and Dumbledore and Voldemort, and you're like, why is it in there? It feels like the movie's already over, but it just kind of keeps going. No one can relate to it. Anyway, there's one. There it is. So that's kind of what Paul's letter feels like here. It's like kind of drawn out, just keeps going. And we may not always appreciate the long and lengthy sermons. I know I myself don't always appreciate it, too. And if we're honest with ourselves, we don't always. But that doesn't happen at the river, of course. All of our sermons are on point, direct, 30 minutes and done, key takeaway. So we may not always appreciate those long sermons, but I do hope that we come to appreciate what the Apostle Paul is doing in the conclusion of this letter. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to read the letter, uh, read the conclusion for us. 
Uh, and I'm going to pray, and then I'll uh, dive into it. So it's verses 12 through 28. So 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 28. It says, We ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray together. Father, we believe uh, that your Holy Spirit uh, was working through the Apostle Paul in writing this letter. We believe that it was written down and kept by the church uh, as guided by your Holy Spirit for our instruction, and that today that you are going to speak to us through this text and that you have a message here for us and for everyone who is present gathered today and online. And so we ask in your loving mercy that you would help us understand this text and help it apply it to our lives like never before. For we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I'm sure you could tell when I was reading the text that it's just, it is broken up. It's a ton of like staccato commands. It's very pithy and poignant and powerful. And all these short commands truly deserve a sermon in and of itself. I mean, we could elaborate on any one of these commands as they're intended to guide and shape the community and what Paul hopes that this community would become. And that's why it's also difficult to preach and why I feel like, Paul, I feel like I could talk for about four hours to you all elaborating everything because it is so important and so amazing. But for today, I want to focus mostly on Paul's prayer, how he prays for the Thessalonians. And what I want to focus on is the God that Paul prays to and then what Paul prays for. So first, we're going to unpack a little bit about the God that Paul prays to, and then we're going to shift to what Paul prays for. So this is in verses 23 and 24, if you're following along. So Paul prays. He starts off. He transitions from all these commands, and then he shifts to this prayer, and it's kind of like this concluding prayer. He says, now may the God of peace himself, the God of peace himself. This is the God that Paul is praying to, the God of peace. Now, when you think about God being peace or being the God of peace, what comes to mind for you? What are you thinking about? Some of the things, the God being peace. If you're going to reflect on that for a second, what would that be for God being peaceful? Now, some I asked, I kind of had like a, everyone shout out in the beach service, but it was way too hard to hear, so I learned I'm not going to do it with you. But I had someone shout out, and they yelled, tranquility, from the back. I thought that was great and amazing and, and definitely a part of peace. I think often when we think about peace, we usually think about peace as the absence of things. So peace is the absence of conflict. Or if I was going to ask you to imagine the most peaceful situation in your life, it would probably be on a beach or maybe you're in the mountains, but 
for maybe half of you, there's probably no one else around. There's probably no one else there because no one else is around and it's much harder to have conflict when no one else is around. So peace is really the absence of people, sometimes. I mean, if you thought about peace in your own home, which I'm sure for some of you that just sounds like a miracle more than an everyday thing, peace in your own home would be when the kids aren't fighting with each other. Peace in your own home when everyone goes to bed on time. Peace when everything goes smoothly, when there's not the same conflict and bitterness. I think that's an aspect of peace, too. But when Paul is talking about God being the God of peace, he's drawing upon his rich tradition. I mean, the Hebrew scriptures have this concept of peace that's really deep and powerful and amazing. And if you've been around the Christian tradition for a while, you might be familiar with this. This word that's at the root of it is shalom, peace. Shalom. And, and this concept of shalom, the peace and what it means, is more the idea of wholeness. It's not the absence of something, but wholeness of something. So if you imagine like a large brick wall that was going around the whole Norris Pavilion, like a huge brick wall, it would be every single brick perfectly in place, everything aligned and attuned, everything operating in its wholeness as it should, as it was intended to. This is peace, this idea of wholeness. But it's more, it's more of a relational term. It's not just this kind of concept of a brick wall. It's relational. So it's in relationships, peace is not just the absence of conflict, but peace is when there's two parties who are operating for the good of each other. They're operating with the other in mind that they care about the other person. They are for the good of the other person. So peace in a marriage is not just when the husband and wife are not fighting, but peace in a marriage is when they're both caring for the other, when they're pouring themselves out for the other. Peace is hard to come by, isn't it? Peace is this good for the other. So when Paul is describing God being the God of peace, he definitely sees God as the God who is for the other, the God of peace himself. But I think there's, again, I think there's another layer to it. This idea of wholeness and relational wholeness, I think God himself is peace. We worship and confess, and it's a mystery, but we worship a triune God. God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's a, it's a divine mystery, and it's beautiful and wonderful, and we can't even begin to grasp the beauty of it. But God exists in perfect relational wholeness. In and of himself, in his very nature, God exists as peace. Relational wholeness, the three persons in unity working together with each other always giving of themselves for the other person, always working towards the one will, same mind, all together in wholeness. This is my best hand motion for the Trinity. <laughs> you kind of get it. It's this, some people talk about this divine dance, this divine interchange of people giving themselves for the other person. So God himself being peace is the God of wholeness, where he himself is peace. He himself is the image of peace. I think there's another layer to it, that God himself, who is peace, when he creates the world, he created this world to operate in this peace, in this shalom, in this relational wholeness. He created the world, this awesome place that we're in. I mean, we're in beautiful Southern California in the South Bay. This is amazing. And he created this world and put humans on it to live in this relational harmony. I think there's four key relationships I think we were supposed to live in that 
God intended us to live in and to flourish. The first is being our relationship with God. When God created the world and put humans in it, we were supposed to live in this harmonious relationship with God where our relationship God was intimate, it was personal, it was deep. In Genesis 1, it talks about God walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. The presence of God was with humanity and humanity with God, and there was this beautiful relationship was happening. Shalom, of humans acting for the benefit of God and God always acting for the benefit of us. The second relationship that we were supposed to have in peace is shalom, is us with each other. As Adam and Eve were being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth, they were supposed to live at peace with each other. As Adam and Eve then became a family, and families became cities, and cities became bigger into populations and nations, they were always supposed to live at peace with each other. Always the good. Everyone in the city operating for each other, for the good of each other always with our mind to the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized. We are always intended to live in this peace, in this relationship. The God of Shalom created this world for us to live in. And the third thing, we are supposed to live in harmony with creation itself. I mean, the very ground that we walk on, this earth, the beautiful world that we have, we are supposed to take the things of the earth and help it to flourish, help society to flourish, help humans to flourish, help creation itself to flourish. If any of you are gardeners, you know that you need to take off the weeds and things like that. We are supposed to help creation itself flourish and become everything that it can be. And this is the design of what God had put on the earth. And the fourth thing for ourselves, we are supposed to have this internal dialogue, peace within ourselves. <laughs> that internal dialogue that I know for most of us, too, we're always very hard on ourselves. We always remember our mistakes more than we remember the good things about us. But we are supposed to have peace within ourselves. We know who God has designed us to be, who we are on the earth, what God thinks about us, and have this interior peace within ourselves, the shalom. And this fourfold shalom, the God who is himself peace, created this peace for us to live in, to breathe in, to move in, to have our life in. And of course, we know the story from there, that Adam and Eve took of the apple and the peace was broken. Shalom was broken what the world was created for, what we were supposed to live into, was no longer. It's as if they took a brick out of the wall, and each one took a brick out of the wall, and then the wholeness of the wall started to collapse. It couldn't stand, and every single one of us here, either intentionally or complicitly, we also are taking bricks out of the wall. I mean, you probably know this easier in your relational dynamics. We all if you've been married, or if you have a best friend, you know that you're not always the best at relationships. Sometimes you might hurt the other person. We all engage in the lack of shalom. Every single one of us. And as humans, I think we, we kind of realize this, and, and we see, I mean, we see clearly today that we are trying to create these communities, these societies, these these people, these groups of shalom, a nation of shalom, the nation of peace, the nation of where everything is operating as it ought to, as it is intended to. And we're trying to do this by ourselves. This is our human endeavor. And we've tried throughout the history of humanity to create these communities of peace. And we're still trying now. We're still trying today. We want to make things right. We do. But the news as you've seen throughout human history and as you see today, it is not possible for us to do it. As humans who ourselves are marred by sin, we are incapable of creating the community of shalom, the community of peace that we want to. 
But the good news is that God himself will do for us what humanity is incapable of doing. This is God's divine plan. God, in his love for us, sent his Son, who is peace. When Jesus Christ was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah, one of the titles that he gave in chapter 9 says, he is going to be Emmanuel, God with us. We will call him the Prince of Peace. Jesus himself is the Prince of Peace. I mean, he is he's God who is peace in himself, and he comes to earth, and he is the one who lived in this perfect peace, a perfect shalom. He lived the perfect life in relationship with God and the Father. He lived the perfect life in relationship with others and creation himself. He knew who he was. Jesus Christ is the peace that the world was desperately hoping for, that we desperately want to see in the world. Jesus Christ himself is the peace. That's why the Apostle Paul will say that Christ is our peace. That Christ himself has made it possible now for us to live again into this relational wholeness that we so desperately want and need. That Jesus Christ is now the peace where we now have relationship again with the Father. That we can now experience again the intimacy with the Father that we are designed for, the intimacy with God, walking with Him, knowing Him, having a personal, intimate relationship with Him. Jesus Christ is the peace who is creating a community of people. We're at peace with one another. Creating a community of people who are at peace with the earth and at peace within themselves. This is who our God is. He himself, as peace, has come into the world to restore peace. It's beautiful and it's amazing that Jesus Christ is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves and creating a community of peace, a community of wholeness. So when Jesus Christ came into the earth, he was launching what we call the kingdom of God. He was launching this kingdom movement where he was establishing the future order now. So when Jesus Christ returns, as Todd preached on last week, he is going to restore all things. He's going to make everything new. Everything will be made new by Jesus Christ. And peace will once again fully reign on the earth as Jesus Christ's kingdom reigns on the earth. As he makes everything new, peace will reign. Shalom will reign. We will have right relationship with God, with each other. It will reign. And we long for that desperately. In the meantime, Jesus Christ is launching his kingdom that we, those of us who follow Jesus, who are devoted to the words and ways of Jesus, would live into that future reality now. We would live into the future reality now. Let me illustrate this. When I was, uh, I lived in Vancouver, where I met my wife. Uh, I lived there for four years. And I grew up in Southern California, and one of the things that we love about Southern California is that it's sunny pretty much all year round, except for June gloom. But outside of that, it's pretty much sunny. But this even goes away in the afternoon. That's one of the things we love. And so moving to Vancouver was a bit of a change for me, because there's actually four seasons in Vancouver. And the winter is brutal, let me tell you. It's really rough. The first winter I was there, in October and November, I think we had one day of sun, and it rained for the rest of the time. It was so rough. But as like a little Southern California boy trying to figure out life out there, it's tough. 
But what makes it all worth it is when spring comes about in summer. In summer, the days are long and everything's beautiful and the mountains are there and the ocean is awesome. But one of the most powerful things which really makes it worth it, <laughs> the hard winters, is the cherry blossoms. And so there's these cherry blossoms that are absolutely beautiful and they are the first sign of life that spring is coming. And so it's super gray and dark and dreary, but then there's these cherry blossoms that line the streets and the suburbs, and they're beautiful, and they come up just with this bright white and pink and these vibrant colors, and everything else is still kind of in winter, and it's still kind of gray and overcast, it's still raining, but these cherry blossoms really are lighting up the streets. It's beautiful, and it's amazing, and everyone's taking photos for their Instagram account because they all take the same photo, and I don't, I don't get it, honestly, but it's just like, it's awesome, it's vibrant. It's the sign that spring is coming. And in some ways, this is what our Christian community is like. We are the first fruits of what is to come. So when Jesus Christ fully restores all things, that's in the end, but we now live into that future reality now. We are just like the cherry blossoms that spring out. We are supposed to be the vibrant life, a community of living in relational wholeness. Well, that's desperately needed today, isn't it? We are supposed to live into that future reality now, and I think this is one of the things that our society desperately needs. We are a deeply divided world, and it's getting more and more divided. And I know that there's divisions in the church. I mean, we all, we think differently. I know there's a communities of people in our church. We all think differently, and we live in tension. But this, this community, this people, we are supposed to be the first fruits of kingdom life, the first fruits of shalom, the first fruits of relational wholeness. And we can't do it ourselves. It's God who is at work in us. And so as we are for each other, Relational wholeness in the community is not the absence of conflict. It's not merely avoiding conflict. But relational wholeness is us engaging in conflict together. Being for the other with humility and gentleness. Knowing that God is at work in us and for us. That we are engaging together for the good. For God's kingdom to come fully in us. So this is the God that Paul prays to. The God of peace himself. The God who is peace and all the layers behind it. Now let's turn to what Paul prays for. Paul prays that may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Completely. There's this idea of wholeness, completeness to this sanctification. And if there's anyone who appreciates grammar, there might be one or two. This you is in the second person plural. We don't have that in English. You know, I get angry about English fails us. But it's in the second person plural. So it's more of may he sanctify y'all. This has a communal mindset to it. Does that make sense? So when he's sanctifying us, it's sanctifying us as a community here. It's not just sanctifying us individually. He will turn to that next. But sanctifying us as a community. In the Hebrew scriptures, often righteousness and peace go hand in hand. They're seen together, often. So this idea that peace comes also when people are living righteously. I mean, if you're living the righteous life in relationship with God, when you have 
concern for relationships with others when you have your eye towards the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, then also peace comes. They go together. They should be seen together. So when we pray to the God of peace, it also makes sense that Paul would pray for sanctification. For this, Sanctification is really just a $5 word for a concept we're all familiar with. It's this idea of being made holy, being made right, being made complete, being transformed into the image of Jesus. So Paul prays to the God of peace that we would be transformed into living a holy life, that we would be being made holy. Does this make sense? So Paul is praying to the God of peace that he would sanctify us completely. And this is where the communal mindset is very, I think, difficult for us as a Western church. I mean, we, our whole life, our society is so individualized. When we come together as a group of people, all of us here are one church body. That any element of sin within any of this group is open to the work of God and the Holy Spirit. That all of our relationships with each other and how we engage with each other is open to the work of the Holy Spirit. It's open to the work of God that God wants to work in us and creating us as this community of peace who are made holy, who is made separate, who is supposed to be that image of what it looks like in the end. Holy and completely, we are to open ourselves up together that we invite God into our relationships with one another and into our community as a church that God would be at work among us. But Paul also prays, he sees that this works out individually too. So he stresses the completeness of sanctification in the communal body. And then he turns to the first person plural, or first person, oh, sorry, wow, that was way off. Second person singular. No one else matters except I care about this. No one else cares. But he shifts to the wholeness and completeness of us ourselves being changed and transformed by God. So we ourselves are, he uses three terms to describe the wholeness of us, our soul, our spirit, and our body. When he's just trying to say that all of who you are, how you use your body, how your soul interacts with the world, how your spirit engages with other things, include what your mind thinks about, all of who you are is open to the work of the Holy Spirit. It's open to God moving in you, of changing you, of transforming you. For indeed, if God is really going to bring his kingdom into the world, that this kingdom of peace is really going to come into the world through us, that we ourselves, all of who we are, needs to be open to the work of God in us. We have to open up all of ourselves. I know it's so easy, and I feel it myself, how easy it is to hide things from God or to guard aspects of our life from God. But no, it's, it's so much safer if we don't allow God into that part of our lives. And often it's so much easier because we know if God comes into that part of our lives and we have to change and we often don't want to do the work that that change requires. But if we are really going to be this community of people who is really like the cherry blossoms and bringing in the first fruits, we need to allow God to transform us, ourselves, all the things of who we are, how we use our bodies, how our souls interact with the world, how our spirit interacts with the world, what we think about. We must allow God. But here's the good news. Do not be disheartened. For Paul ends his prayer with, I think, something that's so encouraging. He says that God is faithful. Surely he will do it. 
This is God's delight. This is God's plan. This is what God is doing in the world, and this is what God wants to do with us. And his faithfulness is what we rely on and what we depend on. It's not our own efforts, but Jesus Christ, who is moving among us and who will change the world. It's not us. It's Jesus Christ who is changing the world. And this is good news. We can rely on the faithfulness of God to be at work in us. And of course, we participate, we're opening ourselves, but Jesus Christ is the one who is working, who is transforming our community. He is faithful. He is faithful to his plans, to his promises, and he is faithful to his people. He is faithful to his plans, this plan of salvation to restore shalom into the world. He is faithful to that plan, and it will come to its final conclusion. He is faithful to his people. He is faithful and present to us as we open ourselves up. God will respond. He is for us and loves us. God is faithful to his plans and to his people, and he will create us into a community of people who live in shalom. And this is going to be tough, and it's going to be difficult, but God will do it. And this is where we find our hope and our encouragement and our peace. So this is Paul's prayer. He prays, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and wholly. And he is faithful and he will surely do it. It's a magnificent prayer and it has far-reaching implications for the, the Thessalonian church and for us as well. So now I want to turn back to the commands. Just briefly, I'm going to land the plane now. You caught it. Just like uh, Paul in his letter here, it might be a long, slow descent, but I am landing the plane. So I want to turn now to his command. So we're going to go back to the start of the section. So this is the overview. This is the mentality of what Paul's trying to do. He's giving these commands because he's trying to shape the Thessalonian church into being this community of people that lives like this in the kingdom. So these commands all live or all help the Thessalonian church live into that reality. And there's two kind of main themes I want to focus on. The first is the community at relationships with each other. So Paul is giving these commands, and at the center of the first, I think, five verses, there's the command to be at peace among yourselves. Be at peace among yourselves. The same thing that we're talking about, Paul commands the church, be at peace among yourselves. Work at it. This is the command. Work at being at peace among yourselves. And it's not easy, and I know it's difficult, and Paul knows it's difficult. That's why he prays that God would do it. But this is the center of it. And he, he talks about a few relationships in the church. Some of that, he's encouraging the church to respect those who are leaders among them. I mean, there's those among us at the River Church, just like the Thessalonian church, who work hard, who are over you and care for you in the Lord, who desperately care and pray for you those who admonish you. And Paul is saying, respect them as leaders. They are hard at work. And they are listening to God, and they are trying to guide you, and respond to them when they admonish you. But Paul also then shifts, and he says, be at peace among yourselves, and then he encourages the congregation, or commands the congregation, to really have this communal family mindset, and saying, care for those who are struggling. And there's three different groups that he talks about. There's three different groups of people, and he says, as they're figuring this out, and as you are caring for them, be patient with them all. Change is going to take time. It's not easy. Be patient with them. I mean, you're still responsible. All of us who are coming here today who consider ourselves 
part or members of the river community, our response will have this communal agreement that we care for each other, that we are with those who are struggling in the faith, that we care for them, we're with them, and we're patient with them. So just like the Thessalonian community, we ourselves, gathered here together, have a responsibility to each other and caring for each other. So Paul first deals with these commands that help shape the community and their relationships with each other. And then the second part that I want to focus on is Paul is encouraging the church at worship. So he gives a list of commands, again in the second person plural, that helps, helps to shape the worship time that they have together. And he says, pray without ceasing, or rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and all things give thanks. This is what the life of a Christian community looks like when they're gathered together for worship. When we are gathered together for worship, we are people who are always rejoicing because we have reason to rejoice. In everything going on in the world, we have reason to rejoice because we know and understand who Jesus Christ is and what he has done, and we have reason to rejoice. We are also people who get to pray without ceasing because we know that because of Jesus, we get to experience this intimacy with God again. That we get to experience and enjoy the close fellowship and connection with God. We get to love it and enjoy it, and prayer is just a part of that reciprocity of relationship that we enjoy with God, and in all things give thanks. Not give thanks for all things, for not all things in this life are good. And we know, I know there's so much struggle and pain and death among us. I know that. I've heard it in the last week, and I've seen it, and it's horrible. But in all things, we give thanks. For Jesus Christ is working, and at work, and will continue to work. In all things, give thanks, because everything that we have in this life is a gift from God. In all things, give thanks. And Paul moves to encourage the church who is shaped by worship to not quench the Spirit, but allow the Spirit to move when you're gathered. To be open to anyone in the congregation who has a word for the church. Do not quench the Spirit, but be open. And then, of course, he follows that, but test everything. Test it. Make sure it's a word from the Lord. Now, that's a sermon in itself, and I don't want to get into that. But there. Test it. Be open to the work of the Spirit. So as we will close in worship, squad, and as we continue in worship tonight, we're going to be a community of people who are open to the work of the Holy Spirit in us, in our own lives, and in the community. So this is really my close. This is actually wheels touching the ground here. Uh, brothers and sisters, those of us who are the community at the River Church, our prayer for you and our prayer for us is may that the God of peace himself, the God of shalom, sanctify us completely as a community. And he sanctify us, each and every single one of us would give all that we are to God. And that he would make us whole and blameless at the coming of our Lord again.